We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Well, I want to welcome everyone to another edition of Healing Stories, and it's my great honor and uh, in this moment to be with trusted healers and two people that uh, we are going to open up to a conversation. And as we do with every podcast, with every moment uh, where someone comes on and we talk, we simply begin by asking them, could you tell us who you are? And I'm going to allow that for you, Dan, or for you, Dr. Grundy, to begin with that question of, could you tell us who you are? Yeah, maybe uh, I'll I'll start and then I'll quickly turn it to my my good friend and colleague, Dr. Dr. Paul Grundy. Um, but uh, I, I'm really an integrator. I'm a community builder. I am someone that uh, sees in colors, sees in gaps, tries to bring together people on causes that matter. And so, consequently, I'm I'm an innovator. Uh, I'm an author. I'm a thought leader, and more importantly, I'm a I'm a friend of uh, my good friend, Dr. Paul Grundy. Paul? Thank you, Martin. Glad to be with you. I, I guess I, I would define myself as a social entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I was in my second year of medical school and I, and, I was, and I was wishing for medical school to end so I could start my life. And, and I realized that I was just wishing my life away. So I went down to see my mentor then, uh, Phil Lee, um, who said, um, you know, I, I have somebody you, I want you to talk to. And I called this number and it was Bob Strauss, who was then the head of the DNC. And he said, Phil said, you have, I, you're going to come and work for me. So I took some time out of medical school and I went and worked on the Carter campaign. Um, and my passion has really been, been around transforming healthcare and making it more palatable and acceptable and the roots of that for me come from my, my, my great uncle and my middle name, Henry. His name was Henry Cadbury. And he was the founder of the American Friends Service Committee and presented the Nobel Prize for the Quakers in 47. And he taught me the eight laws of social change, you know, which, which, uh, you know, which, which are, you know, and, and I think, and I think that was, that was built on a foundation where I actually grew up and spent most of my life when I wasn't in Santa Ana, <laughs> most of my life in, in Sierra Leone, West Africa, where my parents were working. Sierra Leone, Freetown was where the slaves were freed and hence that connection with my Quaker ancestors there. Um, and then my, my first name um, comes from my, my, um, my grandmother's classmate, um, Alice Paul, um, who was, you know, who, 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 who was a Swarthmore graduate as well uh, as my grandmother and, uh, you know, really was active in, in, in women's rights. So, um, you know, that my, my heritage is sort of that. We, we were talking a, a minute ago about listening to the whispers. Um, and, and in another pandemic that, that I was involved in, the AIDS pandemic, I, I was based in South Africa. From my experience in growing up in Africa um, and, and, and understanding the, the values of the traditional healers and the values of the, the, the spirituality, the African spirituality, we had a meeting between the, 
the Traditional Healers Association of Southern Africa and the and the scientific medical community in Johannesburg. And, and I asked a question of the traditional healers because we just weren't communicating at all. And the question was, is it possible that mankind could have pissed off the Supreme Being so much that he placed a curse on us that cannot be removed because you die of AIDS at the time, there was no treatment. And uh, the, uh, Chief Nguni, the head of the Traditional Healers Association got a hold of me and said, the wind must have been speaking to you because, because this is what we think has happened to mankind. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that was a real revelation that, you know, when, when you listen to, when you listen to the whispers, um, you need to really listen to the whispers from the perspective of the community that you're engaged with. And you know what's happening now with the pandemic, with Black Lives Matter, is is uh, just an incredible realization that those are really true aspects. I really want to appreciate the way that we have already brought the image that I feel goes throughout the book, Dan, of this trusted healers and people becoming aware as healers, which is a large part of why we bring people together throughout the world, how they come to their sense of listening, and. I am struck by the way that you found these trusted healers all over the world and to feature the healing story of Dr. Grundy. And I just want to mention one magical thing that came through uh, from Nelson Mandela with you, Dr. Grundy, because we're talking about the pandemic. We're, we're giving a sense of Black Lives Matter. But when he said to you, and, and this is from the book, Mandela said something to Paul he will never forget. Mandela looked me in the eye and pretty much in these words said, you have your own personal magic, Paul. You have the instinctive ability to emphasize and really, really care about other people whose lives at any instant might be totally and tragically impacted. People see that and want to follow you. People with your magic are a rare gift. Dan and Dr. Grundy, could you talk about your gift? Could you talk about that for all of our listeners throughout the world about how they too can tap into this trusted healer? Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start again and then turn it over to Paul. Uh, first of all, um, I worked for IBM for, for many years and had a chance to work with these individuals that are featured in the book. So I, I saw this firsthand and I'm, I'm not a physician. Now I'm a, I have a background in organization and, and people and trying to figure out how things work and creating value. So I was really honored to have IBM put me over the responsibility of what ended up being our, our public sector business, all citizen-based services. And I had gotten to know Paul through my work at, at IBM, and I quickly realized the gift that, that he is. Now, as for me, working with these people was just an honor to see the work that they've done and to feature them in a book was really quite quite a dream of mine. And I told Paul, and by the way, I told our team that was doing this work, someday someone will write a book about the great work that you're all doing. Little did I know I would write the book and feature th th that. And I, I told Paul early on that his face will be on the Mount Rushmore of changing healthcare. I've always told him that because he is, and he's honored that way, literally globally. 
So he is the gift that comes through the book. And if there was one person that we would feature and tell the story of trusted healers and go through his journey, it would be Dr. Paul Grundy. And, and it's kind of interesting that many years ago, in the 1990-something and 2000, we started to work together. And we had a chance to work with organizations around the world that we would now be in a point where we could share those experiences in a book about trusted healers, that's about healthcare, that's about leadership and about societal change. And that's what that's what Paul is, uh, healthcare, his leadership and how he's changed uh, society. So uh, Paul, let me let you tell your story there. You know, if, if you're gonna make significant change in society, if, if um, you're going to take a vision and move it. You need a platform to do it on. <laughs> and, and I've just been so incredibly lucky that, that, that for almost 18 years, I had a platform with, with the leadership and the sponsorship of, of Dan and, and his team um, to do that. I, I would not have been able to, to really support the change um, towards the concept of patient-centered medical home and the concept of a healing relationship of trust as the foundation of care delivery without somebody who, you know, was a, was a leader, right? Was, was somebody who, who could create that kind of a platform. Um, and, and, you know, when you're trying to do social change, you piss people off. You're the troublemaker. That's yeah, troublemaker, and Mandela right? called, called me the best kind of troublemaker. The great troublemaker, right? Um, you know, you need somebody to protect you um, in those environments. And, uh, I, you know, Dan did that in multiple occasions. One that, 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 that I recall is, is how I got the name Godfather of the Patients in a Medical Home. Um, we, had, uh, we had brought together organized primary care who, who, who had separately perceived of this concept of if you have data, you need a home for that data. You need a place for it to reside so that everybody's singing off the same sheet of music, right? That comes out of pediatrics I mean, in, in about 1968 with Cal Shia and then was adopted by family medicine and internal medicine. Um, so if you have a child with special needs, um, you're going to have teachers, you're going to have social workers, you're going to have physicians working on that patient, right? Caring for that patient. And, and they all need to have the same data if you're going to be successful. Um, so, but it's fragmented, very, very fragmented. And so that concept of the medical home, which is a concept for, which is a concept for um, a home for the data, um, you know, we took that idea um, and we reached out to organize primary care and we said, give us a set of principles upon which this can rest. And they gave us the joint principles of the medical home. We then brought together all of the, all of the healthcare plans and we said, by this time we had 47 of the Fortune 100 agreeing that this is the, this is the covenant change we needed with healthcare. And we said, we want you to do pilots around this concept. And, uh, 
Sam Nesselbaum, then the head of uh, Anthem, the chief medical officer of Anthem, said, Paul, we've got to do that. We absolutely have to do that. Um, but you're going to have to hold our feet to the fire because if you, the buyers, don't insist that we do it, um, these other guys are going to ride in our wake. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we did a press release that next morning, and I think Dan was sitting across the table from me when this all happened. We did a press release that next morning, which basically said, we, the Fortune 47, agree with the concepts of the medical home principles. We want you to do three pilots. And if you back out of it, if you don't do it, we'll stop doing business with you. So um, about six months in, one of the largest healthcare plans backed out. I took him to the New York Times woodshed. And by 11 o'clock that next morning, 14 of us had notified them that we weren't going to do business with them, right? So John Englehart, who was then the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, did an editorial and he said, Dr. Grundy's probably not the father of this idea, but he is the godfather. <laughs> and that resulted in one, one of the life-saving events that I had with Dan, and that is that this particular company, we did about $800 million worth of business with on the technology side. And so I ended up, I ended up being called into our leadership senior office. And the person who then became our C C CEO um, basically said to me, Dr. Grundy, we would like to see a lot less horse heads in your emails. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> and Randy McDonald, who was the head of HR at the time, looked over at Dan and looked at me and said, oh, no, he said, you know, you know, we've got to let Grundy do what Grundy does. And uh, I think I think without Dan and Randy at the time, I probably would have lost my job is my guess. And you can comment on that, Dan. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we had another another number of great years after that, after you rescued me. What I find so interesting about the medical home and having time in this space of watching people as they bring it into the healthcare environment, you're really helping the people be honest in terms of the truth of their lives and really their own way of being able to tell their healing story. So it's not as if I as physician have to tell you, but you come to understand it. And that's what is throughout the book of trusted healers is you're allowing people to tell who they are. Uh, how, if I'm a mom and we have many moms who, who listen to this podcast, just want to find the trusted healer in my city, uh, in, even in my world, how would I go about doing that? How from both of your experiences, you've been all over, um, I'm a person and if, if I'm trying and I'm fearful or, or my kid's sick at night, how do I just go out there and say, this is what I want to bring into the universe to heal me? How, how do I find that person? Paul, why don't you take it and I'll, I'll follow you with a couple of comments on this one. Yeah, so... Um, this is a question that I, I, I get uh, pretty often, and, uh, and, and it's not easy, right? I think, I think it's difficult to, to really begin to identify uh, somebody who, who is fundamentally at, at their core uh, a trusted healer or can be a trusted healer or for you. Um, I think a lot of it's the chemistry between an individual but a lot of it's the infrastructure that exists around the person um, that's going to be caring for you. Um, there, there is, there is uh, the largest certifying body is NCQA. And if you Google patients at a medical home, NCQA, you can probably find somebody in your neighborhood or your community that's PCMH recognized. But that doesn't mean that they're really a 
patients in a medical home in the true sense of the word. I think, I think that takes a bit of personal exploring um, and, 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 and a few questions, right? Um, you know, in terms of, in terms of I, I would look for a practice that offers you um, after hours uh, communication that has tools to do that. I would look for a practice that identifies itself as a medical home, but also identifies itself as having weekend hours of having of having convenience. It's really it's really about looking for access, um, convenience, um, real relationship with trust, and and an ability to, to communicate effectively with the practice. And uh, you know, but but increasingly that's happening. I think probably about a little less than fifty percent or more of primary care practices are now recognized as a as a medical home yeah and i think there's a couple of things that that paul talks about here that are really important many organizations now are presenting themselves as a medical home and we started with certification and with certification there was a change in the funding levels and then organizations started to pick up the momentum um, about wanting to be a medical home because people were looking for a medical Mm -hmm. And then with that, we started to get smarter about the early side of preventative care. You know, we in the country only spend 5 to 7% of our first dollar on, on the front door of care. We spend the majority of our money on the back door of care, um, end of life care. And when you look at the best performing countries in the world as far as uh, longevity and other aspects, they spend 14 to some 20% of their first dollar on, on the front door of care. And so as we've gone around the world, we've seen the best practices and tried to bring those forward into the concept of the medical home, all while trying to educate individuals. And in the book, we actually have the questions that Paul just gave you as to what you should ask your physician to define whether or not you're, you're in a medical home. So not only does the book tell you what a patient center medical home is, but we actually give you the questions. Mm-hmm. And many of the people that have read the book have commented, I tore that page out and took it with me in to go see my doctor. Mm-hmm. Now, I will share one, one aspiration that is not in the book that I tried to set as a tone for maybe something in the future, which is... I wanted to ask the question, you know, who is your trusted healer? And oftentimes that's how Paul would start his speeches. And what I found of the great leaders that we studied is they started by asking a question, not presenting the answer. And and Paul would do this in communities and ask, who is your trusted healer? So I took that theme all the way through the book. And at the end of the book, I leave this little teaser, which, which is... Uh, can it be, should it be, will that trusted healer be you? Talking about how important it is for each and every one of us to know the information about ourselves and to be able to engage in this kind of dialogue and be able to share these kind of practices. So we, we, we took people through this journey of care and the continuum of care and what a medical home is, all the way to questions they could ask their doctor and at the end of the book, I, I do throw this hopefully thought-provoking little teaser 
that maybe all of us should take more accountability responsibility and potentially serve as our own trusted healer uh, in the future. And how I was so struck by the end of the book, Dan, because you're saying everyone matters. And it's as if you saw in this moment of Black Lives Matter and what right. our, our country, our world is trying to come to a sense of is, could my voice matter? Could my voice matter in healthcare, in the medical home? And you have created this environment where you say that it has. And, and Paul, one of, the, one of the things that I'm so grateful for is that you always say, this is not the right question. And what I wanted to ask you both is, are we asking the right questions as we're trying to bring this voice that is on the margins, whether that be a, a black a life, whether it be a, a mom who's trying to have her child be seen, whether it be the person who just had to have an amputee, as you've talked about in a number of your talks, how do, how do we get to the right question, especially in this moment of time where there's a lot of screaming and not a lot of whispers? You know, I had a question asked of me that made me really think last week. I, I'm a healthcare ambassador for the nation of Denmark, and I was on a call with with um, my colleagues um, in Denmark talking about the COVID experience and you know what was going on around, around in our country, England and, and and Denmark, et cetera. And the question that was asked to me was about was about an African-American who was shot in front of their house with mental health issues by the police, right? Um, and the question that was asked of me was, who was their trusted healer? Who was their doctor? And it really made me think about, you know, this whole defund the police, not, not so much about that, but, you know, where are we putting our money? Where are we, where are we focusing at the community level on supporting on supporting a community, and uh, and and how and how did that person get there? Right, that, that ended up dying that that evening. You see, in the Danish context, when they asked that question, who was their doctor? It would have been a person who was part of a connected response at the community level. There would have been there would have been social services, there would have been mental health services, there would have been, and they all would have been connected with their primary care physician, you know, in, 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 a, in a connected sort of way, which, which, which this poor person didn't have, right? So what they had was what was available, it was the hammer that, that hit that nail that night, and that was a, police, a policeman. Um, and it really made me think when that question was asked, you know, who, who, who was their trusted healer? I mean, who, how, how did how did we end up that way? And made me look even deeper at how they ended up, how that person ended up, you know, in that ghetto, right? How did they end up in that place? When you look back at World War II and my, our, you know, our parents, Dan's and my parents or, or others that served in the military got loans for houses in new cities like Levitan that built up equity. You know, if you were African-American, you weren't allowed to live there, right? By law. Um, you know, and, and it's just it's just the unraveling of that is 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 just going to be uh, phenomenal. But but asking yourself a, a, a few basic questions, I think, you know, and listening to those, not the screams and not the statues being pulled down, but listening to some of those whispers that are coming out of out of this community response. Yeah, let me uh, add maybe two thoughts here. First, oftentimes when 
Paul, myself, and, and our friend Patrick Kennedy and others get a chance to speak on this topic, people think it is too far away from our words. What Paul's talking about doesn't really exist. I, I will tell you, especially around mental and behavioral health, we've had three great changes. Um, for, first of all, we connected the healthcare systems. So within the medical record, there's now mental and behavioral information in the medical record. It used to never be there. The second is we connected the caregivers that focus on mental and behavioral health with the physical care. So we could do the checkup from the neck up, include that with physical care. And as a physical doctor, as a primary care doctor would refer out, they now get compensated for that. And they're now in the same systems. And it used to be that the primary care doc was not too anxious to refer an individual to someone that would handle mental behavioral health because they were fearful they wouldn't get their patient back and they wouldn't give them the type of care. Now we've now they created the systems that connect, but the compensation systems that that fit within that. And now we've worked with the insurance companies so that the insurance companies have to pay for that mental and behavioral health, which they did not do for a long time to the levels that it should have. And it was a Supreme Court ruling Wit versus United Healthcare that brought everyone's attention to this when the Supreme Court favored for the Witt family so that United had to take and pay for the type of care of mental and behavioral health. So as Paul speaks these words, there's a lot of work that has gone underneath this to have that become a reality and is connected, as he says, on a platform. And now we're talking about a platform that how this works each and every day so it is accessible to people. The, the other thing I wanted to share with you is because you were kind enough to mention everyone matters. And, and uh, oftentimes, we, Paul and I and the team, we were speaking to, to large groups and small groups and uh, broadcasts, et cetera. And when we had these groups, when I would conclude after people like Paul spoke, I would ask people a question. Uh, and, and I would end all of my speeches the same way. And I would say to these people and ask them this question, and, and this is what you just asked, Martin, this is what you just asked. I would say to people and ask them this one question, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? And at first they gave me the stare of the Wisconsin dairy cow. Right, which is what, what's this guy talking about? But then, shortly after, I, I would I would answer myself initially, and I would tell them the answer to the question "Why do we do what we do?" is because everyone matters. Because everyone matters, and as Paul and I continued the work that we did for so many years that we did, people in the audience, when I would ask that question, they would answer that question because everyone matters. And I believe that is uh, inclusive to this Black Lives Matter and, and other aspects of society where we need to pay attention to these different social aspects that need attention to give people a higher quality of life. And it, and it does center on everyone matters. I want to thank you. And I want to end there because I could not uh, give any greater gift to those in our world who are listening for them to come to their own healing stories to say everyone matters. So thank you, Dan. And Dr. Grundy, thank you. 
Uh, thank you for being the magic that Nelson Mandela talked about, but most especially, thank you for allowing us to have our voices no longer be a whisper, but our truth. And for that, I want to thank both of you. Thank you. Time heals all wounds. Join us for our next episode of Healing Stories. Thank you.